good evening, everybody, and um, thank you very much for attending the lecture. My name is Atimad Mohanna. I'm from uh, Research Hello um, in Middle East Center. Um, I would like first to say that the Middle East Center is honored to have Nicola Bratt with us this evening. Uh, Nicola, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with her um, uh, biography. Nicola is a reader in uh, the Politics and International Studies Department at the University of Warwick. She uh, teaches and research on, in, in the international politics of the Middle East with a particular interest in feminist approaches as well as politics from below. Uh, Nicola is an academic um, intellectual. She always combines her academic work with her activism uh, for justice and peace, not only in the Middle East and beyond. Uh, she just, uh, he, she and her colleagues won uh, a, a battle by campaigning against uh, uh, Warwick University decision to uh, invite an Israeli official to speak in the university um, uh, campus, and they won uh, the campaign uh, and the lecture or the, the whole lecture event uh, was canceled. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm particularly uh, proud of her and her colleagues because I'm Palestinian. Um, her, Nicole is, uh, has a long list of distinguished publications. Her work uh, has appeared in International Studies Quarterly, Third World Quarterly, and Review of International Studies, among others, including uh, academic and non-academic uh, out, media outlets. Uh, she, um, she has several books, uh, including um, a book um, written with Najil Ali um, entitled What Kind of Liberation, uh, Women and the Occupation of Iraq, published by University of California Press in 2009. And she's also co-editor with Najil Ali uh, of uh, Women and War in the Middle East, 2009. She's a co-editor of Gender, Governance, and International Security, um, um, published in 2013. And the last book, which is uh, for sale outside, I encourage all of you to, to buy it, uh, Rethinking Gender and Revolution and Resistance, Lessons from the Arab World, published by Zid Book uh, in 2015. Uh, Nicola Bratt has also contributed to the controversial, uh, heated uh, debate of the current day's war and terror and uh, feminism and published several articles uh, on this topic in international journals such as Critical Studies on Terrorism and Third World Quarterly. Uh, Nicola in the period 2010 to 2013 was a co-director of a British Academy funded research partnership with Berzit University Institute for Women's Studies. In 2013-2014, she held the British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship, researching the history of women's activism in Egypt, Lebanon, and Jordan, which is currently, uh, she's working on it uh, as a book um, uh, to be published by uh, University of California Press. 
She was recently elected as a committee member for the Council for British Research in the Levin, and we also have to um, uh, congratulate Nicola that she has been awarded, just awarded an Art and Humanities Research Council Research Grant. Congratulations for a three-year uh, project entitled Politics and Popular Culture in Egypt, Contested Narratives of the 25 January Revolution and its aftermath. So we are welcoming Nicola Bratt to do her, uh, to, to make her uh, interesting uh, lecture. And um, I wish you all switch off your mobiles and um, enjoy uh, Nicola Bratt. Let's welcome Nicola Bratt. Th thank you, Itamad, for this lovely introduction, and thank you to the London, um, the LSE uh, Middle East Centre for inviting me this evening, and to Sandra Spear uh, for all her organisation, and thank you all for coming here this evening. Um, I know how uh, there's so many things going on in London, so I really appreciate your presence here. Um, I want to begin by saying something about how the lecture came about. Um, as Etimad uh, mentioned, in 2013 I was awarded a British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship to study the history of women's activism in Jordan, uh, Lebanon and Egypt, from national independence to uh, the so-called Arab Spring. My research was framed by what I've called a gender paradox. Uh, despite over a century of women's activism, why do women in Arab countries continue to face some of the largest gender inequalities in the world? Simultaneously, my research also sought to critically engage with two core assumptions underpinning the formulation of such a paradox. The first assumption is the reduction of women's activism to the act of resisting patriarchy. This assumption is embedded within the concept of the public-private divide, whereby feminists argue that women are relegated to the private sphere while men dominate the public sphere. But this division becomes problematic when we look at evidence from the Arab world, where women's participation has been encouraged as a means and a marker of modernization. Indeed, since the end of the 19th century, nationalist discourse constructed the figure of the so-called new woman uh, who was educated and publicly visible, as documented by Leela Abu Lohod. In this context... so I've done something to the screen, haven't I? Sorry. Uh, in this context, middle class and elite women began to enter public work primarily by founding charitable associations, but later they created women's unions calling for greater rights for women within marriage and to ensure women's access to education. These women were not merely resisting patriarchy, but saw themselves as contributing to the struggle against backwardness and for the uplift of the nation. In particular, middle-class women's visibility became a key marker of identity for the emerging middle classes. Through their public visibility, 
middle-class women were embodying notions of middle-class modernity, a project that has dominated post-independence nation-state building in the Arab world. The second assumption underpinning the question of women's rights in the Arab world is embedded within a long-standing Orientalist epistemology that sees women's condition as a marker of the Arab world's so-called backwardness. On this basis, a popular answer to why women's activism has not resulted in progress in women's rights has come to be articulated as because of the resilience of Arab patriarchy. Such an answer is problematic because of the way it reduces the causes of women's subordination to Arab cultural values and beliefs, implying that the West sets the civilizational standard for women's rights. Moreover, the arguments about the deficient nature of Arab culture with regards to women completely erase structures of power based particularly on class and nationality and ignore the role of global political economy and geopolitics in the reproduction of these intersecting hierarchies. Therefore, to formulate the title of my lecture as How the West Undermined Women's Rights in the Arab World is not to promise an expose of Western government covert operations, but rather to problematize from the start the way we commonly think about women's rights and women's activism in the Arab world. In particular, my lecture this evening aims to highlight the geopolitical dimensions in the construction of gender norms and resistance to them, as well as to extend our understanding of women's rights beyond laws and public policies to also include the ways in which women publicly subvert and resignify gender norms through their public participation. Due to time limitations, my lecture focuses on the period from 1967 until the 1980s, in which we see a rise of radical and revolutionary movements in the Arab world and their subsequent defeat by Western allies in the region. The main sources for my research are approximately 100 interviews with middle-class women activists of different generations in Egypt, Lebanon, and Jordan. These form the basis of the book that I'm now trying to finish, I hope soon. Um, And uh, alongside this book, there will be a publicly accessible digital archive of all the interviews that I've conducted And I apologise now that I'm not able to quote directly from all the women that I interviewed for this lecture. Uh, This is due to limits on time. I strongly hope that you'll uh, you'll, you'll go to the publicly accessible archive and listen to them yourselves. In the 1950s and 60s, the Arab world was dominated by pan-Arab nationalism. In Jordan... The regime repressed radical nationalist forces in 1957. Nevertheless, it adopted many elements of Gamal Abdel Nasser's state modernizing project. Even in laissez-faire Lebanon, state-led planning and development were introduced after 1958 under President Shahab. In all these cases, some form of state feminism was integral to modernization plans. This included promoting girls' education and encouraging women to enter the growing civil service and public sector. Whilst middle-class women were encouraged to participate in the public sphere, 
Uh, simultaneously, they were expected to respect existing gender hierarchies and norms of female respectability. Gender inequality in the private sphere continued to be enshrined in religiously inspired family codes. During this period, women's activism was mainly restricted to charitable work. The massive defeat of the Arab armies in the 1967 Arab-Israeli war brought into question the legitimacy of the pan-Arab project and led to a new era in Arab politics. Much has been written on the military and political dimensions of the 1967 war, as well as the intellectual soul-searching in the wake of this massive defeat. However, there's been almost no attention to the gendered implications of the defeat, this is significant not only because it marginalizes the particular experiences of women and indeed men as gendered subjects and citizens. It's also significant because the 1967 defeat created a new opportunity for women to transgress state feminist gender norms in a way not seen since the days of anti-colonial struggles. In Egypt, the profound shock of the 1967 defeat unleashed new oppositional movements, at the centre of which was the student movement. It was initially sparked by outrage at the lenient prison sentences handed down to the army generals responsible for Egypt's defeat in the Six-Day War. However, the demands of the students went much further, including calls for greater political freedoms, as well as the removal of intelligence and police from university campuses. In January 1972, thousands of students participated in demonstrations, leading to a sit-in in Tahrir Square. The students were forcibly dispersed the following day and some were arrested. However, radical students continued to raise their national and political demands in addition to protesting against the arrest of their colleagues. Lebanon experienced a huge wave of social and political movements, agitating for change in the period before 1975. All aspects of the Lebanese status quo were being questioned and challenged. Lebanon's elite was blamed for the growing socio-economic problems in pre-war Lebanon, including inflation, unemployment, income inequality and regional development disparities. An alliance of leftist parties were united as the Lebanese national movement under the leadership of Walid Jumblat. They called for democratic and economic reforms, including deconfessionalization of the political system, as well as an end to the sectarian personal status laws. The Lebanese national movement created an alliance with the Palestine Liberation Organization, which had been granted freedom to launch military operations against Israel in 1969. In Jordan, which had been under martial law since 1957, the huge popularity of the Palestinian fighters forced the Jordanian government to relax its tight grip on political and civil life, creating an opening for all political and civil forces in Jordan. Leftist and radical nationalist parties once again flourished, calling for greater democracy and the liberation of Palestine. Leila Nafa remembers the atmosphere at university at the time as being very liberal, with a majority of students involved in political activities, including young women. The Palestinian resistance became the backbone of the Jordanian opposition, whose programs and activities became Palestinianized. 
Several writers have pointed out within these leftist and nationalist movements, issues of women's rights and liberation were subordinated to national and political goals. Whilst they believed that women should be mobilised to participate uh, in the public sphere as a means of modernising Arab societies, nevertheless, they ignored gender inequality within the private sphere. Julie Petit's seminal study on the Palestinian resistance movement in Lebanon found that there was no coherent policy regarding the question of gender inequality and no attempts to transform gender norms beyond the calls for women's participation in the national struggle. Uh, writer and activist Saher Atal was one of several young Jordanian, Jordanian women who joined the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine after 1967, and she soon became disillusioned by the double standards that she witnessed. I quote, When it came to dealing with women, there were two types. If it was his sister, he would make her stay home. If she was a comrade in the party, then he would say, you're free and you can sleep with me, and whatnot. So that made me pull away from them. I believe that you should be progressive in all aspects, applying progressive measures to yourself first of all. End quote. Despite these tensions, however, these movements successfully mobilized young women into public activism on an unprecedented scale. For the first time, there emerged mass women's organizing amongst Palestinian refugee women. Nadia Shamruch, born in Dehesha refugee camp in the second half of the 1950s, displaced to Jordan after 1967, remembers being in sixth grade at school when her teacher asked, her, uh, sorry, asked them for volunteers to join the Zahrat, which is a youth wing of Fatah for girls. At first, her parents refused, but Nadia went on hunger strike until they allowed her to join. The two and a half years that Nadia participated in the Zahrat taught her, in her own words, that I am strong and that I am exactly like a boy. Similarly, Haifa Jamal, born in Rashidia camp in Lebanon, recalls when the PFLP arrived in her camp in 1969. They announced a training course for young women from the age of 12 to until 30 for physical fitness, raising awareness of the Palestinian cause, and even in how to use weapons. Being only 10 years old at the time, Haifa was initially not allowed to register. However, she asked her teacher, who had a good position in the PFLP, to help her and her cousin to join the course, where she learned, in her own words, to become strong and very active. The narratives of Nadia and Haifa suggest that young women felt empowered through their participation in the Palestinian national movement. Moreover, women's participation within these movements actively subverted existing gender norms of female, middle-class respectability, which viewed political involvement as unfeminine and even sexually perilous because of the risks of gender mixing, not to mention the dangers of being arrested. The post-1967 turmoil, more generally, provided opportunities for young women to transgress dominant gender norms. Ada Seyfer-Dowler recalls being at university during the height of the Egyptian student movement. I quote, I remember I did things then, which now I'm thinking about, I would never do them again. You just walked into a lecture room and you'd say, what the hell are you doing sitting in the lecture room? You should join the movement. 
and then you walk out. And it's so embarrassing to think about. End quote. Hela Shukrala, born in Cairo in 54, but having spent a large part of her youth in Canada, where her father was an ambassador for the Arab League, returned to Egypt in 1971 and was propelled into activism by the arrest of her brothers who were active in the student movement. Despite her young age, she became one of the leaders of the movement of the families of the arrested. She recalls a meeting with the Speaker of the Parliament, who knew her father very well. I quote, So he started speaking very personally with me. Oh, Hela, I know since you were a child. So I told him, please, be very professional. And he was very upset about it. Of course, I was very rude, but anyway, that was natural for the time. End quote. Even where women's public involvement appeared to conform with traditional female activities of charity and welfare work, women resignified their work as part of, rather than separate from, the political struggle. In Jordan in particular, large numbers of women became involved in public voluntary work to address the humanitarian crisis caused by the influx of people displaced by Israel's occupation of the West Bank. Miasa Saudi was born in Haifa, forced to flee to Jenin in 1948 and displaced again to Amman as a result of the 1967 war. She volunteered her time to help refugee women and children in the camps, whilst also working at UNRWA and caring for a newborn baby, motivated, she told me, by a sense of national obligation. The memories of the women that I interviewed suggest a socio-political environment in flux in the period after the 1967 defeat. Social and political movements emerged to challenge the political, geopolitical and social status quo. Whilst ideologically these movements had problematic attitudes to gender inequality, nevertheless, they provided a terrain for young middle-class women to subvert gendered hierarchies and transgress dominant norms of gendered respectability. Women participated in street demonstrations, joined political groups, challenged authority, disobeyed parents, and some were even arrested. Others resignified traditional female charitable and welfare activities in terms of contributions to radical political struggles. Meanwhile, Palestinian refugee women, who previously had only been addressed as beneficiaries of humanitarian and relief activities, were actively mobilized as agents in the national movement. In this way, women aligned their performances of radical new gender constructs with resistance to the socio-political and geopolitical status quo. Sorry, take my... getting hot. However, this post-1967 revolutionary wave in the Arab countries was eventually defeated by forces in the region allied to the West. The counter-revolution not only targeted radical political forces, but also women and gender. Jordan, one of the staunchest Western allies in the region, was the first country where the regime launched a massive crackdown on the PLO, 
Throughout 1970 and 1971, the Army battled against the PLO, causing significant damage to infrastructure and many civilian casualties. The PLO was then forced out of Jordan, whilst their allies amongst the Jordanian progressive forces were targeted. Soher Atal recalls, anyone connected to the resistance in any way was summoned by the intelligence apparatus. Some people went to jail and some were tortured. Some of them were dear friends and relatives of mine. The regime crackdown had the effect of pushing many women activists away from political parties. They not only faced government repression, but also risks to their reputation, as the notion of so-called honour was used as a political moral weapon against women involved in political work. According to Leila Nafa, people left the political parties and changed to the old traditional ways, and traditionally women don't mingle with politics and they don't join in public events. End quote. The return to so-called traditional norms, also encouraged by the regime, operated to mark the break from the revolutionary post-1967 period. Nadia Shamrukh recalls that after the departure of the PLO, her family expected her to return to being a normal girl. Nadia was obliged to hide her interest in politics from both the authorities and, her, and from her family. Meanwhile, the Muslim Brotherhood was allowed to operate freely and even cultivated by the regime as a counterbalance to the secular opposition, helping to further fuel conservative gender attitudes, including a trend towards women's veiling. During this period, Nadia resisted her brother's demand that she stop wearing jeans and instead start wearing a jilbab in public. In Egypt, Sadat first attempted to undermine radical political movements by allowing Islamists to operate openly on university campuses. In contrast to the rule of Gamal Abdel Nasser, where uh, Islamists had been imprisoned and even executed. As Ida Seyfadala recalls, Islamist students targeted leftists and Nasserists, attempting to censor their student wall magazines and even using violence against them. I quote, we as women, we didn't get beaten up, but we received a lot of abuse, you know, calling us bitches and whores, so I was happy to graduate, end quote. Women's bodies and gender norms were central to the Islamist project. Ida remembers that, um, Ida remembers that when the Islamists took over the student union, they began to advertise Islamic dress at reduced cost and two veiled students tried to convince Ada to wear the veil. Sadat's support for Islamist students and his broader rapprochement with political Islamists was not only a way to counter the influence of, of Nasserist and leftist political groups, but also to signal a clear break from Nasser's secular modernizing project, central to which was state feminism. Sadat undermined some of the gains for middle-class women through the introduction of infitah, or economic reforms privileging the private sector. The relative decline in public sector wages as a consequence of infitah disproportionately impacted women for whom the public sector was the employer of first choice. For, um, for the first time, and in a marked departure from the Nasserist era, there were public debates 
questioning the desirability of women working, and the government offered numerous incentives to women to take a leave of absence without pay, to raise their children and to work on a, or, or to work on a part-time basis. Such attitudes reflected growing social conservatism encouraged by Islamists. Popular resistance to Infitah culminated in the 1977 uprising called the Bread Riots in the Western media, or the Bread Uprising by Egyptians. The protests were triggered by the government's announcement of the removal of subsidies on several basic commodities and reductions in state salaries. On the 17th of January, workers walked out of their factories and were later joined by thousands of students, civil servants and ordinary people who marched on downtown Cairo. Protests quickly spread throughout the country. All in all, 160 demonstrators were killed and 800 injured by security forces. Thousands of leftists were rounded up and imprisoned, accused of attempting to overthrow the regime. Many were released without charge, but not before having spent up to six months in administrative detention. Magda Adli, then a student of medicine at Al-Azhar University, was one of about 20 individuals arrested for her involvement in the uprising, and she spent more than a year in prison. The wide-scale clampdown on activists after 1977 heralded the end of the leftist student movement as a force within Egyptian politics. Many of the underground Marxist organisations began to break up. Similar to what we've seen in Egypt since the summer of 2013, many activists have become dispirited and withdrew from public activism. Many took time out to read, pursue careers or doctoral studies abroad, reflecting upon and revising their previous political ideological beliefs. Women who attended university in the 1980s remarked to me that there was a near absence of political activism on Egyptian campuses beyond Islamist student groups. In Lebanon, counter-revolutionary efforts were led by the right-wing Falange, or Kata'ib party, and its allies. Their militias, grouped together under the umbrella of the Lebanese forces, launched a series of attacks against Palestinian fighters and their allies in the Lebanese national movement, culminating in the breakout of the civil war in 1975. While Syrian intervention in 1977 weakened the Lebanese national movement, nevertheless, it's arguably Israel's invasion of 1982 and the siege of Beirut that really undermined the progressive forces in Lebanon. In a bid to finally eliminate the PLO from Lebanon and support their phalangist allies, Israel launched Operation Peace for Galilee in 1982, advancing until Beirut. The siege of Beirut lasted for three months, during which time electricity and water were cut and there were limited food and medical supplies. Israel bombed the city, including hospitals and residential buildings, whilst its use of airbursts and white phosphorus artillery shells and cluster bombs pushed up the mortality rate among the wounded to double the normal levels in war. Leila Zakaria, who remained in Beirut under the siege, recalls a lot of suffering but people's feelings were positive all the time. It's only after, you know, when the agreement came that the PLO should leave. They were never defeated. The national movement and the PLO were never defeated in Beirut. Never. It was a big shock for us that they accepted to capitulate. But everybody was proud to be part of that battle. 
not just me or, or, or just because I have a commitment, but also ordinary people, end quote. Under Israeli and U.S. protection on the 23rd of August 1982, Bashir Jamail, who's the leader of the Falangist Party, was elected president and the PLO was forced to leave Lebanon. On the morning of the 15th of September, following the assassination of Bashir, the Israelis entered West Beirut. Over the following days, the Israeli army facilitated the massacres by Lebanese forces of Palestinians and some Lebanese in the camps of Sabra and Shatila, amounting to at least 800 murdered and hundreds disappeared. After the departure of the PLO and the fall of Beirut, the political and cultural atmosphere of Beirut changed. The Lebanese army and Maronite militias conducted a campaign of terror against Palestinians, randomly arresting, disappearing and even murdering them. Between 1985 and 1988, the Amal militia viciously attacked Palestinian camps in Beirut and the south in what was called the War of the Camps. It became risky to be part of or associated with Palestinian political parties, and many women stopped their political work, switching instead to work with humanitarian and relief organisations. Leila Al-Ali remembers that after 1982, people became more conservative in the camps and mixed activities with girls and boys together, such as voluntary work and cultural activities, came to an end. However, the ongoing civil war and its humanitarian consequences continued to draw women into public work as nurses and relief workers. After 1982, when the conflict became more sectarianised, women also played an important role in the civil resistance to war. The end of the civil war after 1989 was obviously a huge relief to everyone. A central part of the counter-revolution in the Arab world was the restoration of the gender status quo ante. However, this did not end women's public involvement. Perhaps paradoxically, women's organisations and initiatives began to flourish in the aftermath of the counter-revolution. In Egypt, as Nadia Ali has documented, the New Women's Study Group, which later became the New Woman Foundation, was started by former student activists in order to understand women's specific subordination. Uh, Noella Sadawi established the Arab, Arab Women's Solidarity Association, raising the issue of violence against women. In 1985, a group of women activists and lawyers created a coalition against the repeal of the relatively progressive articles in the personal status law. In Jordan, women activists established the Jordanian Women's Union to participate in the 1975 UN Women's Conference. Throughout the 1980s, women became involved in studying legal reforms to women's rights, and with an end to martial law in 1989, several women's organisations were established. In Lebanon, after the Civil War, women began to create new organisations addressing women's rights, empowerment and combating violence against women. The re-emergence of women's independent associations, in the case of Egypt and Jordan for the first time since the 1950s, gave space to women to articulate a new gender discourse that escaped the problematic subordination of women's issues within revolutionary ideologies. However, in a context where popular forces were defeated and political oppos opposition groups 
with the exception of the Islamists, were weak. It also led to the isolation of women's rights agendas within domestic and regional politics. This isolation was exacerbated by the increasing NGOization of women's movements after 1990, which prevented the mobilization of wider constituencies. Moreover, women's rights demands had become delegitimized by the fact that authoritarian regimes have selectively instrumentalized women's rights and attempted to co-opt women's organizations through state feminist institutions in order to project a modern image abroad. And this trend increased after 2000 as, uh, as part of the sort of war on terror, the idea of targeting women and empowering women as a way of counteracting uh, militant Islam. In Lebanon too, sectarian parties selectively support women's rights demands where it furthers their own sectarian agendas. Consequently, it is not surprising that when popular movements began to emerge after 2000, initially sparked by the Second Palestinian Intifada, women's rights issues were not on the agenda. Women were highly visible in these movements, yet unlike the revolutionary movements after 1967, there was, also, there was almost no attempt to include the woman question within these movements' opposition to US imperialism, neoliberalism, and authoritarianism. It was only in Egypt from 2011 to 2013 that women were able to reinsert the woman question back into popular movements. However, this mass mobilization of women came to an end with the military's ousting of the Morsi presidency in 2013. In Jordan and Lebanon, mass protests were stimmed by societal divisions along national and sectarian lines, respectively exacerbated in Lebanon by the Syrian conflict. Continuing women's activism in Egypt, Lebanon and Jordan illustrates the resilience of women to remain in the public sphere, but also demonstrates the problems they face to link their demands for women's rights and bodily integrity to wider popular and progressive movements. In conclusion, I wrote the conclusion on my laptop on the train on the way down, sorry. <laughs> I just have to dig out my conclusion from my laptop. Very unprofessional of me, sorry. Um, Okay, so in this lecture, I aim to problematise two assumptions about women's activism and women's rights in the Arab world. First, I have attempted to expand our concept of women's agency beyond resistance to patriarchy and to demonstrate how the subversion and resignification of gender norms was also part of a counter-hegemonic movement against the post-1967 socio-political and geopolitical order. In other words, women's participation in radical movements embodied socio-political transformation, including transformation of gender norms. Second, I've aimed to problematize the notion that the West is an agent of progress and women's rights in the Arab world. Rather, as a result of their geopolitical interests, they have supported regimes that have clamped down on revolutionary and radical popular movements and suppressed women's embodiments of radical femininities. Over the long term, 
The demise of radical secular movements has led to a decoupling of secular women's rights agendas from local popular projects, paving the way for their co-optation and instrumentalisation by authoritarian regimes and international actors, and rendering secular women's rights activists vulnerable to accusations of representing foreign agendas. Thank you. Thank you so much for your interesting lecture. So informative and analytical that helps us to better understand the complexity of women's activism at the current days in the Middle East. Okay, so now we'll open the floor for questions and answers. And I consulted with Nicola um, regarding having three questions rather than one uh, question, one by one question in order to allow maybe uh, space for uh, more questions to be raised. And uh, please, can everyone try to be very precise with the question and only have one brief uh, question and waiting for the microphone to use in order to speak loudly. Okay, so let's start with the, three, the, with the first three questions. Uh, one. I have a very bad sight, so try to see if there are more hands raised. Okay, three. So. Um, what can the West do to promote women's rights in the Arab world, or should the West just keep to themselves and stay out, stay out of it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I thought you talked very interestingly about the role of um, Israeli occupation of Palestine in 67 as kind of a catalyst for wide change across the Arab world. And do you think that sort of a, a change in the Palestinian situation in the next five or ten years will be likely to precipitate a change across the wider Arab world? And the third question? Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I was wondering about um, several things, actually. I'm going to just uh, put them in brief. Uh, first, why, uh, why the Arab world? Because I've been working on the Iranian women's movement, and uh, many of the things that you say are really similar, including uh, the problematization of gender norms in the public and the you know, double standard. Um, and um, so... You know, furthering that, I was wondering what are some of the nuances between these three countries that you have come across? What are some of the differences between the three if we don't want to put everything in a big category? Um, also, um, when you were uh, talking about the involvement of young middle-class women, how do you exactly define middle-class in the context of the Arab world? Um, and lastly, um, if, in fact, the, um, for um, various reasons, uh, women's activism have been has been like, isolated from the national and regional politics, and uh, there is the NGOization and also the problems of state feminism, which um, is a very complex issue. Many of the times, without a state feminism, a lot of the things do, do not go ahead. 
So, uh, for instance, right now, in the context of Iran, state feminism is very much problematized by radical leftists and progressive forces, but in the absence of any source of popular uh, movement, uh, one cannot do without that, uh, you know, state feminism, uh, just as we cannot do without the notion of women's rights as human rights, which can be problematized on so many different uh, ways, but you know, what is the alternative? And also, accepting all this, I'm still wondering, what is the solution? I mean, is how much weight is on the women's movements themselves to um, go towards popular movements? As someone who is part of both women's movement and progressive movements, there is still quite a bit of sexism among leftist movements, not only in the Arab world and the region, here in England as well as we know. So um, is it always, uh, you know, women's responsibility to go towards the democratic and progressive movements? What about the other movements to come towards the women's movements? Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow, those are really great questions. Thank you. All right, I'll take them in turn. What can the West do to promote women's rights? I think, I mean, this is the whole, the whole problem of the idea that the West can promote women's rights. Um, and, m I mean, my answer would be um, that uh, Western governments, um, whenever, the problem is that whenever Western governments... Uh, talk about women's rights, uh, it always becomes a very racialized discourse. And therefore, uh, it can never be uh, a constructive way to bring um, progressive or positive change in the Arab world. Or actually, you can see it here in England. You know, when David Cameron thinks he's empowering Muslim women in the UK, you know, what's the reaction? The, the reaction is that Muslim communities feel stigmatized and even there's a backlash against uh, women with the idea of women's rights. So um, the, the only way in which you can change that racializing discourse is, for, well, there's two, there's two ways. There's one, the, con the, the, the need to constantly challenge the racializing elements of that discourse. But uh, uh, second of all, I mean, if, if the geopolitical uh, power was... Uh, was differently distributed, and the West did not have power over um, the, the Muslim world in the way that it has, then the discourse wouldn't uh, evoke the same um, backlash that it evokes. So uh, within the current context of the, uh, the way in which international power is distributed, um, my short answer would be that Western governments cannot promote women's rights in the Arab world or, or anywhere else um, outside of the West. Um, with regards to the ch change in the Palestinian situation, well, it depends change which way. Because if you look at how things are going in Palestine these days, um, the, I mean, that doesn't look like there's positive change on the horizon. However, if there was to be a popular uprising in Palestine again, uh, against uh, Israeli occupation, then maybe that would um, change, that, that would challenge the geopolitical uh, balance of power within the region. Of course, the, the problem now is that 
for those movements inside Palestine to succeed, there needs to be similar popular movements outside Palestine like there was after 1967. And um, we've just had a wave of counter-revolutionary um, movements after the so-called Arab Spring. So there's, a, there's huge obstacles to um, bringing about a change in the Palestinian situation in a progressive, positive way. Um, but I would say that in general, as we've seen in the short period of 2011 to 2013, it proved again uh, that wherever there is a revolutionary upswing, this is where women have the real opportunity to challenge uh, dominant gender norms. Um, so uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm positive about revolution, although, of course, uh, some people might feel a bit negative after what's happened uh, since 2011 in the region. Um, why, why the Arab world uh, and not Iran? I, it's just, um, you know, like, uh, as an, I, I, my origins are as a, an area specialist, and I learned Arabic originally, and I ended up studying the Arab world. But I, I, uh, I mean, I think it's really interesting to compare um, the experience of Arab countries with Iran and also other uh, countries um, beyond the, the Middle East. Um, and, and it's interesting to hear that there are some similarities as well. Um, in terms of, uh, there are nuances between the three countries, obviously, and some of that is to do with the nature of the regimes. So um, it's really, that one thing that struck me, although my, my research was not a quantitative analysis, uh, so I can't you know, give you statistics, but it did seem like, on the whole in Egypt, the, because state feminism under Gamal Abdel Nasser was probably the most radical of the three countries that I uh, studied, um, it's where I came across uh, more women who are um, publicly involved in what I would call more sort of politicized activities. Um, whereas in Jordan and Lebanon, um, especially Jordan, uh, mo a lot of women are... Um, involved in much more sort of uh, welfare, charitable activities. Um, and Lebanon's also an interesting case as well. Um, you've got a bit of both. The, the problem of... Uh, oh, the definition of middle class in the Arab world. I think the middle classes in the Arab world have not been sufficiently studied. They are a cornerstone of post-independence state building in the Arab world. And what I mean by the middle classes is that it's a class that... Uh, in effect was um, created by uh, state building. Um, they were the beneficiaries of the modern state building project. Um, they were the people who became um, uh, civil servants who, who uh, worked in the public sector. Uh, and, culture, and this is, for me, the really important thing about the middle classes in the Arab world is that culturally... Um, they were also the most invested, they've been the most invested in, um, in the project of modernity, if you like, uh, in the region. And it's, it's partly, be, it, I think, that the success of the Islamist movements have been partly because of the middle classes um, becoming dissatisfied with secular modernity and looking for um, other... Uh, alternatives, other alternatives of modernity projects, and, and it's the embrace of the middle classes of, is, of political Islam that I think has helped to fuel 
uh, the success of political Islam in the world, uh, in the Arab world, I should say. Um, the, the issue with state feminism, for me, is um, that, okay, whilst, for example, if you, if you look at um, when state feminism was uh, more aligned with uh, social welfare policies, I think uh, people could see state feminism within a larger project that was uh, positive for the well-being of the majority of the population. Um, but since, uh, the, particularly since the 90s, state feminism has, ex has existed and even operated in a way that it, it supports neoliberalism uh, and neoliberalization in the region. So that, for me, is how state, state feminism has become very problematic because in engaging in uh, state, when feminists or ordinary you know, women's activists engage in state feminism in a context where state fem feminism is not only implicated in authoritarianism, which it was always anyway, but more importantly that it's implicated in a project that's led to the impoverishment of so many people, then um, I think that, that's why you get such a backlash against state feminism in the region. In terms of what the solution is, I completely agree that it shouldn't be all like up to women's rights activists to do all the work, carry the load. You know, um, there should be, um, you know, the, the progressive movements should be more open to um, uh, addressing uh, gender issues and the woman question. Uh, and, and that's, and I think the interesting thing is, in the context again of um, the revolutionary upswing in Egypt after 2011, there was much more of um, uh, that progressive movements were uh, emerging, especially amongst youth, that were addressing women's uh, rights issues as part of a wider uh, program of uh, social justice. So it's possible in the right context, but I think where you continue to have a reproduction of um, authoritarian, sectarian uh, regimes, um, then... Uh, you have this continuing continuation of this problem where it's a bit like a sort of a vicious circle. Because popular uh, movements are weak or non-existent, uh, then women's rights activists are unable to really um, get... That, there's no movement in which to really get involved, and therefore um, you have these very isolated groups, you know, the, the very few... Uh, progressive people and on one side and the women's rights activists on the other. And because women's rights activists have had a, a much, <clears throat> I think, more in general, have had a, a bigger space in which to operate because authoritarian regimes have in general been um, uh, much more sympathetic to allowing women's rights activists to continue. This, this also helps to perpetuate this this uh, division between the, the groups. So I think it really depends on the context, and when the, and when the context is right, then uh, new uh, synergies and new alliances are created. Okay, thank you. Let's have another three questions, and I'll start from that side. You, and... Yeah, because we didn't have one in the first round. So you are first, and... Two, second, uh, okay, three. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Nicola, for a fantastic lecture. 
Um, you got me thinking about the NGOization, NGOization of women's groups and women's movements. And it struck me that the, the movement towards securitization of the humanitarian field and the NGO field might be an opportunity for women's groups and women's movements to mobilize themselves on a new platform. So it struck me that when we were saying that women are NGO, have, been, have been sort of redirected towards NGOs and soft issues, that that suggests sort of a soft security approach and a soft power approach. But if there's an increasing move towards securitization in the humanitarian emergency and development field, which there is, then perhaps that gives, a, gives room for the space that you were talking about, where women can mobilize themselves in a way to, to sort of push back against negative securitization and development. It's just a thought. I wonder if you have any subsequent thoughts. Thanks. Okay, before the second question, I apologize that I forgot to uh, ask you, please, uh, to uh, present your names and affiliation, as I feel interested to know <laughs> the names and affiliation. This is my mistake. Sorry. I know who that is. That's Shelley Dean. <laughs> Okay, my name from, is uh, I'm from uh, Queens, Exeter University. Belfast, yeah. And I wanted to ask you about um, um, why you didn't really go into the use of the West of uh, the Islamists. I mean, uh, obviously the West is closing both eyes against uh, Islamists. They are, in fact, supporting them you know, in, uh, in ways that, take for example Afghanistan, they created this entire scene to, to get Russians out. But the same thing happened, they supported the MBs, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and, 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 you know, uh, they fled when they were persecuted, they fled to the West, uh, in, they were in France, they were in England, they still are in England, the biggest uh, brotherhood outside Egypt is in England. The headquarters are here. Uh, okay, now it's Turkey, but anyhow. So the West actually props the Islamists who are funded by the petrodollars to veil the women and take away their rights more and more and more and more. And you could see this in, in the revolution itself when the women were in Tahrir Square and they were raped, uh, groped, uh, this entire Taharush thing, you know, it was done by A, the Islamists, and B, the military, you know, the blue bra woman who was, uh, this was by the military, so yeah, f regime friendly you mentioned, or, you know, the, the Europe friendly regimes were being propped like is the case with the military, but you did not mention the role of the Islamists that are being propped by the West to no end, I mean, uh, see, for example, Ghanoushi in, in, in Tunisia. He is still being sold as a moderate uh, Muslim, and, and the same with the MBs. They should be the moderate opposition, and I, there is no, nothing moderate about them for crying out loud, Yani. You know, the ulterior motives are there, but uh, they should be out in the open to... My name is Ahlam Akram. I am managing Basira for Universal Women's Rights, and I'm, I am of Palestinian origin, uh, of course being privileged by having British passport. But I would like to, uh, to, to, to say something which I haven't heard from anybody, is that after the occupation, or immediately after the uh, 67 war, how the Muslim brothers, or let's say Islamists, have used that as a reason 
our defeat, that the defeat of, uh, of Arab armies against Israel being the one because Israel is following its religion and we are not. And they started from that point to promote bringing uh, women using women actually by veiling and bringing them back, uh, you know, to emphasize the uh, Islamic or Muslim identity. While at the same time, uh, creating an atmosphere of fear of the Western modernity in particular, because unfortunately in that part of the world, the only side they see of modernity is uh, uh, Western women, yeah, West, yeah, Western women being whatever you can name them. Now, you said how we can, uh, uh, the West can do nothing in helping women's rights. I, I agree with you to an extent. I think it is time for Western government to use in a positive way voices of women, in particular activist women, in, 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 the, in, in the diaspora and in the, in the new uh, countries where they, you know, uh, to promote, because I think we are more we are more capable and able to present a better, more balanced uh, vision of what's the what's the moder what's modernity in the West, as well as how how the laws consider, uh, uh, especially in family status law, how the laws in the West stand up much better, a hundred times better than any other religious laws in in Western in, in in anywhere in the world. So yes, it's about time that we have to. To, to, to put our hands together for a new vision, considering that we live in one world, we are threatened all by one thing, one thing at the moment. There are no, no borders, no nothing, so we have to put our hands together to promote, to promote universality of women's rights and reach to the Muslim, to the Arab world through women in particular to, to change the mindset. It, and again, we have to use power as well to, to, to convince or even force uh, Muslim or Arab countries changing of curriculum in particular where it carries the worst injustices for minorities including women's rights. Okay, uh, before uh, uh, Nicola answers, can, can you please just give a brief questions in order to give a chance for others because time is running. Thanks. Um, all right, Shelley. Hi, Shelley. It's nice to see you. I didn't know you were really going to come. Um, could you? I, actually, I wasn't quite sure. Are you? Are you saying that because of the uh, NGOization, the securitization has so um, uh, sort of saturated the field that um, this is uh, this will push women to to resist this? And well, I think yes, I would. Like to say that there has been some resistance against NGOization, against uh, by um, particularly young women's rights activists. So uh, after, after 2005, six, for example, in um, in Egypt, uh, there was established establishment of Nazareth for feminist studies, um, and in uh, in Lebanon, in uh, a bit later, 2010, there was the establishment of Nasawiya. And uh, these groups um, quite uh, purposefully wanted to challenge the NGOization um, that has occurred amongst women's groups in the previous uh, decade or so. Um, the Nasawiya, I understand, is actually um, 
uh, facing problems. In ter- uh, yeah, somehow that project hasn't quite worked out for them. Um, and uh, uh, Nazareth for feminist, for feminist Studies is doing very well. But what they found was actually it was quite difficult to resist NGOization. So um, they've, uh, they, they've tried to do things like um, actively reach out to uh, communities and, and to mobilize uh, young people, young women in particular, but they actually also um, uh, mobilized uh, with young men. I went to one of their events. I was very pleasantly surprised. Lots of men there, young men. Um, but uh, the, the difficulties in challenging NGOization is, um, and perhaps this is not just a problem for um, groups in the Middle East, but also more widely, is how do you institutionalize what you're doing whilst also resisting NGOization? And you need funding. Um, and the government, in order to uh, allow you to operate, it wants you to register as an association. And then you've got to have a, a board and you've got to have a, you know, all these trappings of an institution. So it's actually uh, been very difficult. But the other thing I would say as well is that... Um, in particular NASRA for Feminist Studies, but not just NASRA, other groups as well, have, um, and this touches a bit on the point you were making, that they, actually they're going beyond... Um, so, so for a long time, uh, CEDAW became quite hegemonic uh, in terms of framing women's rights uh, in the Arab world, particularly after the Beijing conference in 1995. And uh, some um, young women have found CEDAW a bit limiting and, and instead have been uh, drawing more on um, domestic sources of legitimization for women's rights. And in particular, after the Arab Spring, um, you see in, in Egypt and uh, in Jordan, um, the, uh, you know, women, young women in particular, uh, drawing on um, you know, ideas of social, inserting women's rights into, pro, into projects of social justice and not just framing it in terms of international uh, human rights commitments <clears throat> or women's rights commitments. So there has definitely been uh, trends towards that. Um, in terms of uh, the Islamists, okay, so I guess you were hoping that the, the, the lecture I might give was the lecture where I talk about how the West has supported Islamist movements. But Not necessarily, but uh, okay. missing. Well, okay, I, 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 I'll tell you, I fully understand what happened in Afghanistan was blatantly that the US, um, you know, was funding... Uh, jihadists there against uh, the Soviet occupation. But I think it's a bit more complicated than that in the Arab world. At least from the research that I've done, um, I don't think you can say that there's a direct link between Western governments and, um, and Islamist groups in, in the Arab world, at least not in the period that I'm looking at. I didn't find any evidence. Um, the the, the, the the, it's more indirect, you know, like so um, Sadat, which was a big ally of the West, um, uh, the, the Jordanian regime, big ally of the West, they allowed uh, Islamist groups to flourish whilst they were repressing uh, leftist nationalist groups. So, I mean, in that sense, there's a, uh, an, an indirect link. Um, but, and I also don't, I don't share with you the idea that because uh, Islamists seek asylum in Britain, therefore Britain is supporting 
Islamists. I think it, there's a tension between, you know, uh, Britain wanting to, uh, you know, seem like it's um, abiding by human rights conventions, and, and then, then obviously also sees Islamists as, as a problem itself. But I think these, these links are much more uh, complex. Um, so um, the, the idea of using women's voices um, that you raised, I think this is also, uh, I would say, a bit problematic because when the West, uh, when Western governments use women's voices, like, for example, uh, but actually they do it quite a lot. Uh, did you go to the, um, the summit against sexual violence against women? Yeah. Well, there were lots of um, women from uh, conflict zones who were speaking at that conference. The go Western governments are happy to allow women to speak when they're, what they're saying fits in with the agenda that they've got, but um, they will edit and uh, uh, reinterpret women's words to fit their own agenda. And this discrepancy of power between Western governments and women's activists means that women's activists will never have control over their own words and what they really mean if, if they allow Western governments to sort of just use their words. So I think it's a very perilous, um, it, it, it's a very perilous activity, but I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's just very perilous, I think. We have only uh, 17 minutes to have a few more questions here. And there, second one. And the third one is here, the second line. <laughs> okay, so um, you start, Thank you. Please. Thank you for, for your lecture. It was, was very nice and very interesting. I just came back from uh, Cairo. I'm a PhD student in SOAS um, in anthropology. I had two questions that are somehow related. One linking to what you were saying, that women did not, activists did not control their representation towards what the governments and donors were somehow imposing. There is an assumption there that in case they do, they will agree in which is this representation. And I think the, the landscape is so polarized right now that how, what are your views on this, you know? How could that, how do we go to understand, you know, how this will be orchestrated by themselves? Is it, is it a power relation or is also that some groups are somehow using uh, alliances with the government or not? Or what you were saying, you know, that this critical question where some of them enter in contact with the state feminism, you know. And regarding the implication of the West in this, how do you see questions of funding? because most of these organi independent organizations, um, they are funded by other West, Western-based independent organizations that have uh, people from the region working in those organizations. And at the same time, you also have governmental donors giving funding to governments 
in the same line, you know, working in the opposite direction. So it's a very complex thing. So I wanted to know which is your opinion regarding funding. Okay, uh, second question somewhere here. Oh, okay, <laughs> sorry. Okay, but, but uh, please make your question very brief. Uh, we don't have time. Um, hi, my name is Francesca. I wanted to ask you, uh, how much do you think women were involved in armed or are involved in armed conflict in uh, the Arab world? And since I'm from Lebanon, more specifically in the Lebanese Civil War, and uh, do you think they have any role as women, or are the parties in combat gender neutral or even completely masculinized? Thank you. Okay, the third question. I think this, uh, Sandra, that woman there. Um, Hi, I'm Fatima. We can have oh. your question too, after. Yes? Hello, the first line? Yeah. We can have your question. Hi, I'm Fatima Badri, and I'm an Iraqi student of international relations. And as Ahlam has already touched upon, I would, would just like to know that, seeing as we are um, speaking about the West, um, I don't know, but throughout your research, can you um, pinpoint on whether um, the West, it, the West, is actually entitled to um, support human right, uh, women's rights? And if that is the genuine concern, then wouldn't they, wouldn't the first country they would target Saudi Arabia? Or is it, in fact, an economic play on w what fits their agenda? And um, yes, basically that. Thank you. All right. With regards to um, Western... Um, sorry. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Just, yeah, hopefully I'll, I'll keep this brief. Um, I'm Amira. I'm, uh, I'm doing gender studies at SOAS. Uh, I just had a couple of questions. One of them is kind of linked to uh, one you answered earlier about your focus on middle-class uh, women. Um, I don't... I, I've never heard it articulated this way that the, the rise of so-called Islamism, I don't know what word we can use to describe this, but let's just call it Islamism for now, uh, is related to the disillusionment of the middle classes uh, with uh, the modernity project. I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that, um, and then just, if, if you could just say something about where you see the working class um, within this context, that would be great. Uh, and just my second question was about um, what your thoughts are on transnational feminist solidarity, uh, so moving beyond states and, and policies and all of that, uh, do we see something on an activist platform uh, taking place? Do you see it as something productive where the West can be involved in some way with the Arab world and movements there? Yeah. Thank you. All right, so regards to funding, um, the, I should say, okay, so uh, for, for the most part, uh, women's organizations in uh, the Arab world take, uh, accept funding from the West. However, um, they uh, do so often with very um, 
I mean, they're, they're quite selective. I mean, it's not just that they're willing to accept any funding. Um, so that, uh, they're um, exercising quite a lot of agency in, return, in regards to what sort of funding from the West they accept. So, for example, um, a lot of um, women, particularly in Egypt, uh, women's uh, organizations will not accept funding from the U.S. Uh, or from any uh, Western governments or, or governments uh, with... Um, foreign policies that are negative towards um, the Arab world. Um, that's not to say that there are, there are women's organizations that will accept U.S. funding, um, but there's a lot that don't. And similarly, in, uh, in Jordan, there's, there's more that will accept U.S. funding, um, but there are definitely ones who won't. Um, the, uh, for example, in Lebanon as well, a uh, uh, I, I uh, interviewed a woman who told me uh, who runs a um, a gender equality uh, NGO, and she said that she won't accept funding from the U.S. because it comes with these counterterrorism um, uh, regulations. Uh, and given that she does some work in the southern suburbs um, where Hezbollah are particularly strong, then that would be counterproductive to the work she's doing. So, um, I mean, women do exercise agency. Uh, they're not just accepting the funding, but many of them do. And they uh, justify it on the basis of, well, it's just money. It's money that I'm using to do the things that I want to do. And, and I, think the, the, I, I think we have to be careful that sometimes um, uh, some people would argue that Western funding is somehow dictating the sorts of um, projects that women's organizations do. Um, but it's uh, often the case that um, many of the women who uh, are actually leading these organizations have been trained in Western universities and they are um, and they themselves believe for example in uh, Western approaches to development um, so uh, the, the um, transfer of these sorts of ideas um, is not through the funding per se um, the, the question about women in armed conflicts uh, is a good one. And in fact, I've got a PhD student who's doing really interesting work on um, women fighters in the Lebanese Civil War, uh, and you should talk to her. <laughs> She's really the expert on this. But there were women fighters during the Lebanese Civil War on all sides. Um, and I think uh, it's really interesting... Um, to, 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 to study more in depth about how the tensions between, you know, uh, taking up a very um, a masculine role of fighting and how that, uh, if, uh, that played out in terms of, you know, uh, a woman's identity, her, her own gender identity in the way that she was received. But like I say, I really should talk to my PhD student about this. Um, the question about is the West entitled to support uh, women's rights and human rights? I think, again, it's, a, it's one that goes to the heart of this whole problem about, um, you know, what, why does the West think it has a role to play in promoting uh, women's rights or, or human rights? Um, and often the... I mean, it, it's hugely frustrating um, for the West or for Western governments to talk about... Uh, how they're supporting 
uh, women's rights and human rights in other parts of the world, yet simultaneously to ignore certain violations when it suits them, for example, in Saudi Arabia um, or in Israel or here in the UK. Um, however, just to link that with the question about transnational women's solidarity, it's not, uh, I'm all for transnational women's solidarity, so I'm not trying to demonize the West, and I want to try and go beyond an idea of like uh, a binary of um, West Middle East. I think these, but this binary is obviously constructed on a continual basis for political, strategic, uh, geopolitical reasons, and we should try and resist that, and transnational solidarity is uh, actually the best way to do that. So I, I, I completely uh, agree with that idea of um, the positive role that transnational women's solidarity can play. Having said that, my experience is that it's actually also very difficult. So, um, and, and a lot of what attempts to be transnational feminist solidarity still um, and on, at times can fall into sort of colonial feminist traps. Um, and it's actually really, it's really difficult to have a good transnational feminist analysis. It takes time, and often, you know, we're busy people, we don't have a lot of time. Um, you know, I'm willing to speak at length on an interpersonal basis on my frustrations of transnational women's solidarity. Um, the, the issue of um, the middle classes is, okay, so I should uh, say I don't think Islamists are against modernity. They're not. Islamists want an Islamic modernity. They try and reconcile modernity with what they see as uh, an Islamic project. And it's full of tensions. I completely agree. Nevertheless, that's what they aim to do. And I think the middle classes, um, I mean, it's not, my, it's not necessarily my argument. I mean, I think if you read Nazi Ayyubi's um, uh, book on political Islam, um, I mean, he, he talks about how uh, Islam, Islamist movements, um, particularly after 1967, um, I, and I agree with you there that the 1967 war was quite a key moment in, in this respect, um, that uh, because the 1967 war triggered this, um, uh, this disillusionment with the secular modernizing projects of the Arab nationalist, Arab nationalist regimes, um, many of the middle classes became open to uh, political Islam as an alternative, as an alternative type of modernity, a more authentic one. Um, and in terms of the, the role of the working classes, do you mean like in ter their role in political Islam? No, actually, I was just wondering because we were just talking about the middle class. Yeah, yeah. Because they're a majority and yeah. they're very, very important majority. They are. I completely agree. No, I completely, and, and I certainly don't want to erase the agency and the importance of the, of the, of the working classes in the um, history of the Middle East. That is definitely not my um, objective. What I'm trying to do is highlight, this, because very little is specifically written about the middle classes, in fact, I can, can't think of hardly anything that's written specifically about middle classes in the Arab world, and it in relation to the issue of gender, the gender question, I think 
it came. If you like, I didn't go out to study the middle classes. It happened because all of a sudden I realised how important women's visibility and women's activism is to middle class identity. And that's how I got into that route. Um, and, and somebody um, needs to do uh, a piece of research um, that's equally as attentive uh, with regards to the working classes because too much of what's written on the working classes is um, just like sporadically like talking about their, their, their movements like when they're protesting but not about working class lives in general. I mean, there's, there's still, um, that's still very marginalised. I would say actually in general... The history, the contemporary history of the Middle East is, and the Arab world is still overwhelmingly a history of elites. There's, um, there are really great things written, uh, social history um, and gender history, but it's still um, you know, within the minority of the scholarship. Uh, and if you like, uh, look at like, some of the main history uh, books about particular countries like... Uh, Philip Robbins' History of Jordan, for example, or um, Fawaz Trabulsi's History of Lebanon. Um, Fawaz Trabulsi is a bit better. He does mention a bit of social movements. But uh, really, it's the history of uh, elites um, and, and not a history of ordinary people. And I think the really uh, important thing that's happened since 2011 is to put popular agency back onto the agenda of scholars and um, hopefully we'll be seeing uh, a flourishing from now on of, of more scholarship that looks at the important socio-political role of uh, ordinary people, non-elites, in the history of the Arab world. Is that okay. a good uh, to end on? We uh, only have three minutes and I, I think we have space maybe for one, two questions, if they are very brief. Uh, yes, um, can I have the right to ask my question? <laughs> okay, you, you start, you start, very, very brief. Yes, I can hear you. I just uh, want to ask you a little bit uh, to, to, um, to, to extend a little bit on something that I find a bit problematic. Um, one of the feminist uh, approaches, feminist movements that came out because of Sadat, I think, in Egypt was a feminist, an Islamic feminist movement. Mm. Can you expand a bit about the role of the Islamic feminist movement as an agent of suppressing women rather than actually giving women modern rights. Mm. Um, have you come across anybody in Egypt in your interviews who what can be put under this category or not? Can okay. I just ask for a clarification? When you say Islamic feminist, do you mean Islamist women? Yes. Not Islamic feminists yeah. in the sort of... A couple of... I'm not sure. Not I can't remember their names. The two women... I can't remember the names, but there are two academic women 
who uh, wrote about Islamic feminism in Egypt, yeah. and there were Islamists as well who became uh, uh, who became also feminists, as uh, being affected by these people as well as by what's happened generally politically in the country. So both. Okay, and. Uh, Uh, we have no no time. Sorry. Uh, my my <laughs> question: yeah. um, How do you link your uh, analytical approach that you presented in uh, in the lecture with the actuality uh, that many many women, including Gazan women, uh, which I I studied, who I studied, uh, Yemeni women, Egyptian women, who actually exercise their agency to defend their vulnerable men. How, how you link this current uh, form of women's exercise of agency to defend vulnerable women who are so many in, in the Arab countries. Um, yes, this is my question or comment. difficult question to ask me at the end. Haram <laughs> <laughs> I alaykum. Mean, we don't have actually time, so if you just... Okay. Uh, so briefly, I'd like to just say that it's very important to make a difference, differentiation between Islam, women who are as part of the Islamist movement, um, who in the, in the period that I focused on in this lecture, they weren't they were mainly in the background. They were not. Um, uh, uh, important. Act they weren't very visible in in the movements of the period that I'm looking at. Um, the but what's interesting is that after uh, from the 19, mid 1990s onwards, women in Islamist movements really began to uh, come to became much more visible and I think we really and there needs to be more studies done on women in Islamist movements surprisingly there's actually very little written um, the uh, issue of uh, Islamic feminism I see as a sort of intellectual movement and I don't actually see that there are a few women I met who uh, would define themselves as Islamic feminists but it's really like less than five. It's not an actual movement, I don't think, my personal uh, belief. However, saying that, there are uh, young women in particular. Again, I mean, the, the, the new generation of women activists are really important in terms of pushing forward new paradigms uh, of feminist activism in the Middle East. And there is a, a, an openness um, to exploring uh, Islamic feminist ideas, uh, drawing on... Uh, Islamic concepts, um, but not um, not only. I mean, they, they, there's also this uh, need to sort of break down some of these divisions between Islamic and secular, which I think are also interesting. Um, in terms of uh, uh, Itzamad's question, I mean, I think what's really... Um, I think one of the things that's quite discouraging, actually, when you uh, study uh, women's activism, middle-class women's activism in the Arab world is how the links with um, ordinary women or working-class women are actually quite limited and they're usually only in the form of um, working-class women as beneficiaries 
uh, of um, middle-class women's activism rather than as part of um, joint movements. And I think the problem there is that working-class women often have very different um, priorities. Um, they're not invested in this uh, same sort of middle-class gender ideology uh, like middle-class women. I'm not sure if that's actually the point that you were trying to make, but I think another, another I think not only, we don't need just transnational solidarity, actually we also need trans-class, more trans-class solidarity um, in the Arab world. It's much harder than transnational I think solidarity. it is, it is, it is actually, yeah. Uh, okay, thank you so much, uh, Nicola, for... Those who are interested to tweet the event, they can go to um, hash LSE Prat. And I'd like to announce the next um, lecture for the Middle East Center. It's next uh, Tuesday, 26, um, for uh, Ferdinando Ebel of the LSE Kuwaiti program. It's about the political economy of subsidy reform in Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, I would like also to remind you that uh, Nicola's book is outside for sale for anyone who is interested to buy. Thank you again. Bye. Thank you very much, everybody.